Hey, where we are today is we're, we're back in John 12. And I want to remind you, just give you some context uh, of where we are. It's a very, very important moment, as I mentioned last week. So Jesus has come into Jerusalem. Uh, obviously, everyone kind of you know, was very excited, waving palm branches, but they, they've already jumped to the end. They're assuming he's the Messiah, the Messiah on their terms. But Jesus sees this is it. This is his hour. His hour is at hand. And so he, he, he makes a declaration at this moment, and there's just a lot of depth into what he says, and we've been unpacking that for a few weeks. But it begins in verse 23 when he says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. You know, and we know he, all throughout the first you know, 11 chapters of John, he's been saying, my hour has not yet come, it's not yet come, now it's come, right? And then in the end of his, of his talk here to both his disciples and the, and the crowd, he says a couple key things, and we finished with this last week. He says, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I'm lifted up, will draw all people to myself. Clearly, this hour marks the defining, central, everything of his life and ministry. Now, he says now, several times, now. I'll be glorified. Now is the judgment of the world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And again, he points to how it will be accomplished. The great magnet of Christianity. Jesus says, when I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. We looked at that picture last week. Now, I give you all of that so you understand the context, because what we're looking at today is one verse, just one verse. But it's an important verse, and it represents us. That's why it's so important. Because the crowd who hears Jesus in this speech uh, that went from 23 through the end of 32, they're going to ask two really good questions. So here's our reading of the day, just one verse. Uh, the Sykes family are going to lead us in the reading of Scripture. Take it away. Morning, Colonial. We're the Sykes family. I'm Phil. This is my wife, Annie. And our two kids, Finn and little Nomi. And uh, we have been part of the South Kansas City campus for just about five years now. And uh, active in the Sunday school there and uh, Bible studies for Annie and I. And we are just uh, so glad to have Colonial as a part of our lives. And we look forward to when we can be with all of you again in person. Uh, We love you guys and miss you too. Uh, Our scripture today is from John chapter 12, verse 34. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? The word of the Lord. Let's pray and then we'll get started. Lord, we're so grateful We're so grateful that not only has Jesus spoken so definitively and powerfully about who he is and about this hour, uh, the the power of the cross that will draw all people to himself, but that there were actual people like us standing by when he said those things. Who asked the questions we're all asking? Questions that billions of people have asked ever since. Why? Why would the Messiah have to die? And who is this son of man? And so I pray that you would speak today through the power of your Holy Spirit, teach us, and help us to understand why this matters. Help us to understand, unless we're worshiping you on your terms, we're worshiping a God of our own making, that that this is how you have revealed yourself to us, and it matters. 
Help us to understand that, to take it to heart, be, be transformed as we grow ever closer to Jesus. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So, I'm grateful that these questions were asked. I'm going to devote my message today to answering and addressing this one last question. Who is this son of man? All right. And my message will fall under three subtitles predictably. Number one, the historical context of the Son of Man. Number two, three ways that Jesus defined himself as the Son of Man. And of course, number three, why it matters. All right? First of all, the historical context of the Son of Man. Let me just begin with a question. If you've ever read the four Gospels, you've probably, at some point, I mean, I'm, I'm going to ask you, have you ever been reading the Bible and and just stopped and said, why did he call himself the son of man? Why did he call himself the son of man? You know, if you're anything like me, you probably just assumed he had a good reason. It had something to do with the Old Testament. And you didn't really see a problem since Jesus was actually born of woman. Yeah, I mean, he's born of man, of mankind. He's a man. That's generally how I thought about the Lord's use of this title when I was a young person. But, you know, as I got older and I took a greater interest in the Bible and began to ask my own questions, I began to wonder, why wouldn't Jesus call himself the son of God? That would be unique. That would be, that's who he is, right? Doesn't that give him more authority than saying the son of man? If Jesus was the Messiah, why not call himself the Messiah or the Christ in the Greek? John the Baptist called him the Lamb of God. The crowds coming into Jerusalem referred to him as a king. Why not use those titles. You know, Jesus could have identified himself in numerous ways, all of those ways. But when you read the four Gospels, almost exclusively, he uses this one singular title, the Son of Man. In fact, this title occurs 69 times in the Synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and 12 times in the Gospel of John. Now, like many of you, I've heard pastors talk on this. I've read some books and, and had you know, I've even taken a stab at this in different sermons at times, and I've never devoted a whole sermon to it. But typically, we just jump back to Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14, and here's how we connect the dots. Let me read that for you. Daniel writes, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. That sounds like Jesus. It sounds like a Messiah. And clearly if Jesus is the Messiah, he's linking himself back to Daniel 7 as the one who appeared as a son of man. And, I, I mean, I think that's a very reasonable connection. I still hold to that connection. Um, even though it says, one, like a son of man, I think when Jesus says, the son of man, I, I think there's definitely a connection there, and I'll come back to that. Now, I also noted that God regularly refers to the prophet Ezekiel as son of man. So for some time, I wondered, well, perhaps son of man was also a general title that God chose to use with his prophets. Jesus certainly qualifies as a prophet, amongst other things. But the truth is, the more I've researched this in preparation for the message today, I mean, the truth is, most scholars will say there's a bit of mystery surrounding this title of the Son of Man. 
Let me uh, unpack that for you. And, and of course, we have to geek out for a second and look at the original languages. The phrase son of man in the Greek that we find here in John's gospel uh, is hus to anthropo, which of course means literally son of man or son of the man. But we really should dig deeper than that because the phrase is earlier. Uh, so we look at the Aramaic and the Hebrew. The Aramaic is kind of a, a slang of the Hebrew and, and more modern than the ancient Hebrew, probably the language Jesus spoke when he walked the earth. Uh, for, so for the Aramaic, it would be Barnasha, Bar is son, Nasha is man. In the Hebrew, the phrase is Ben Ish or Ben Adam. You, you recognize that, right? Ben means son and Ish or Adam means man. Now, just, just a reminder, you've heard this before, but you'll recognize in many of the biblical names, Barnabas, right? Barabbas, Benjamin, Ben-Hadad, ben all of these names begin with son of, right? So just a little history there. Now, here's what's really interesting as I dug into this. In the ancient context, both in Hebrew and in Aramaic, the use of Ben or Bar, which means son, it was often employed in what's called a figurative sense. So that the word following Ben or Bar, uh, that word following just it designated the classification of which a person would belong. Let me just give you an example. If you were going to call someone a liar, you would call them a son of a liar or a son of a lie. That's just the way that that would work in Aramaic or Hebrew. If you were going to refer to a wealthy man, you might call them the son of wealth or the son of a rich man. If you're going to refer to someone who is an excellent marksman, you might refer to that person as the son of a gun. Never mind, I just made that up. But you get the point. So keeping that figurative use of the language in mind, if, that, if that's how we were to apply it, uh, when we see son of man, it could literally just be translated as man. And by placing the definite article before the phrase, it is possible that Jesus referred to himself as the man which I kind of like that translation because I think Jesus is definitely the man. He's in my book. But more likely, Jesus adopted this title to emphasize the classification of that which he wanted to be associated with. I.e., he's one of us. He is human. He is a man. And, of course, that leads me to my second subheading, three ways that Jesus defined himself as the Son of Man. Now, Of course, even more important than understanding the historical context of the phrase son of man is discovering what Jesus revealed about himself when he employed that title, when he applied that title to himself. And and I'm going to say there are at least three ways. There's at least three. There's more than that likely, but we don't have all day, right? But let me give you at least three ways that Jesus defines himself in utilizing the title son of man. Number one, he identifies with us. Number two, he distinguishes self from us. And number three, he establishes himself over us. All right. First, Jesus identifies himself with us when he refers to himself as the son of man. You know, really in the most winsome and humble sense, Jesus chooses a title for himself that says in no uncertain terms, I am with you as one of you. You know, think about it. None of the heavenly beings, not God the Father, nor the Holy Spirit, nor any of the angelic host, could ever refer to themselves as Son of Man. Jesus, though, comes to us 
as one of us. It is the brilliance and the blessing of the incarnation. John captures that early on in the prologue saying, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Paul articulates the wonder of the incarnation of Philippians 2, speaking of Jesus this way. Though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being found in the likeness of men. Jesus came to us in our likeness. He is fully human, which means what? Which means he understands. I consider Luke 9:58 when Jesus says, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, or roosts, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus not only identifies with the hardships of life as a human being, but he's relating with the uniqueness of our human hardships, even as compared to the lesser creatures. I mean, think about what he just said. A fox can lay down and sleep in any hole that he can find or dig. A bird can find rest wherever they can perch on a a branch, right? Animals are perfectly at home in the world. But humans are not. Jesus is articulating that. We need to build homes to protect ourselves from the elements. We are cursed as a species, right? As, as humankind to wander this world with longings that will go unmet until we leave this world and find our true home with the one who created us to live in perfect harmony with him. Jesus gets it. He's one of us. He knows what it means to be a stranger in a strange land, to experience hardships, poverty, isolation, and alienation. Listen to this, what he says, the son of man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. <laughs> do you hear that? Jesus is relating with us. He, he's doing what human beings do. He's eating, he's drinking, he's, he's making friends, and you know, he's making friends with the salt of the earth, and yet he's falsely accused. He's accused of being a drunkard and a glutton. Is there anything more common to the human experience than eating, drinking, making friends, and being misunderstood? He understands. He, he took on our experience. But listen, Jesus did not apologize for this. He did not apologize for being the friend of sinners because he came to be with us as one of us. He came to be a friend of sinners, which means that as the Son of Man, he was clearly disarming approachable, enjoyable, relatable, fun to be with, a true friend. And we learn that he came to help us. Jesus said, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give himself as a life, to give his life as a ransom for many. Think about that. How human and how beautiful and how powerful is that? Jesus reveals his loving heart, his selfless commitment to serve, to give up his life to save those who cannot save themselves. He's not just our friend. He's our very best friend. He's the best kind of friend because there's not a selfish bone in him. He's faithful to the end. To know him is to love him because to know him is to know. In the deepest way that a human can know anything, that he loves us more than any other. He loves us as though we were the only person in the world. He sees each one of us. He sees you as worth living for and worth dying for. You know, when we think about this this man, Jesus of Nazareth, as he calls himself the Son of Man, I mean, can we even grasp 
the beauty of his condescension. This name that he chose for himself, the Son of Man, says it all. Let me quote my favorite old guy, Mr. McLaren. He says, is it not beautiful? And does it not speak to us touchingly and sweetly of our Lord's earnest desire to get very near us and to bring us very near to him? That this name, which emphasizes humiliation and weakness and the likeness to ourselves, should be the name that is always upon his lips. Just as, if I may compare great things with small, some teacher or philanthropist that went away from civilized life into savage life might leave behind him the name by which he was known in Europe and adopt some barbarous designation that was significant in the language of the savage tribe to whom he was sent. And then say to them, that is my name now, call me by that. So this great leader of our souls, who has landed upon our coast with his hands full of blessings, his heart full of love, has taken a name that makes him one of ourselves and is never wearied of speaking to our hearts and telling us that is that by which he chooses to be known. It is a touch of the same infinite condescension which prompted him coming that makes him choose as his favorite and habitual designation the name of weakness and identification the name of Son of Man. I love that quote. It's so powerful. Let me move to the second way that Jesus distinguishes himself. And this is going to feel a little ironic. But let us now consider, in addition to identifying with us by leveraging this title, the Son of Man, Jesus is also distinguishing himself from us. Now, I know that seems initially contradictory, but it's not. Just consider for a moment how preposterous it would be for an average human being to insist on calling himself the Son of Man. <laughs> Just think about that for a minute. As if that was supposed to somehow clear up some possible misunderstanding, right? I mean, anybody that you know, if, if Pastor Jim or Pastor Greg, I mean, a, anybody that even that you respect says, please refer to me, I'm, I'm, I'm the Son of Man. You're like, duh, <laughs> right? I mean, you're a human being, of course you're a Son of Man. Uh, I, I get here. Here's just a kind of a parallel thing. I get a kick out of people who, you know, I hear this every so often. People say, "I'm a good person." I mean, I'm not perfect, but I'm a good person. <laughs> and I always want to laugh and say, "Thank you for clearing that up for me." You know, because I almost made the mistake of thinking that you are perfect. No, uh, your perfections are not quite as well. Your imperfections are not quite as well hidden as as you apparently think they are. Nobody in this room is under the impression that you are perfect or that I'm perfect. So you telling us that you're not perfect is not only redundant, but evidence that you have a hopeless case of narcissism, right? You see my point? The average Joe does not need to emphasize that he is the son of man or a son of man. That is a given. This is why Jesus is differentiating himself from us in this respect, if you, if you really think about it. Jesus clearly felt that there was a need to clarify to everybody that he was the son of man so as not to be equated with a God disguised in human flesh or an angel or someone who is incapable of relating with man's nature and pain. Why would Jesus need to make such a qualification if not for the obvious reason that Jesus was not just a son of man, he was the son of man. He's not just one of us. He is the best of us. In Jesus, we see not only a human being, but the perfect human life. 
Again, McLaren writes, when Jesus says the son of man, he seems to declare that in himself there are gathered up all the qualities that constitute humanity. That he is, to use modern language, the realized ideal of manhood in whom is everything that belongs to manhood who stands forth as complete and perfect. He's one of us. But Jesus will never say, well, I'm not perfect. He actually is. He's the perfect human life. And that makes him unique and distinct from all of us. He's one of us, but he's the best of us. We learn in John's prologue, obviously, that Jesus, the Son of Man, came from heaven. He comes down and he does become one of us. He's not a God walking around in disguise in human flesh. He, he, the Word becomes flesh. But he was with the Father in the beginning, which accounts for the fact that he is both fully God, fully man, and he is fully man, and he's the fully best man. He is the, the ideal, realized man in that respect. In John 3, we hear Jesus say, No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. That gives us a sense of his origin. In John 6, Jesus asked, What if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Once again, the Son of Man, he may be one of us, but he's distinct. He's distinct in the origin that where Christ was before he took on flesh and became one of us. He's the, he's the, the, the Son of Man. And that's the way that we should think of that. It is a unique relationship with God. It's a unique relationship with humanity that Jesus presents to us in the text. As such, and this is so important, Jesus places himself in the only position that the Son of Man could be, and that is between the holiness of God and fallen humanity. It's right here as the, the only mediator between God and men that the perfect human life, the Son of Man, steps as a mediator, as the pathway from people who are fallen and condemned in their sinful life back to be reconciled to the Father. That's why Jesus says in John fourteen six, I am the way. The truth and the life, no one comes to the Father but through me. There is only one way to the Father, and it is through the man, the Son of Man, the Son of Man, Jesus, in his unique and distinct position. He is one of us. He is the best of us. He is unique in that respect. Jesus says, similar in John 6, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. He's not just saying that to a group of people. He's saying it to you. He's saying it to every human being. There's something that you can only get uniquely from him, the Son of Man. And it's nourishment. It's life. Listen to what he says. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Truly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And of course, he's talking about, you know, what we practice in the Lord's Supper, but he's, he's talking about himself. We have to take him in. Uniquely, this one man, Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of Man, the man, who stands in the gap, for fallen humanity, and in his death on the cross, when he's lifted up, he draws all of us. But we, we get what we need 
life, nourishment, eternal life through him and through him only. And that makes him very distinct. He's the only means by which we may be saved. And Jesus states this regularly. He says, the son of man came to seek and save the lost. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. Church, do you get it? Only the perfect human life could stand in the gap between us and the holiness of God. Only the perfect Son of God could give himself as a ransom for many. And it is Jesus. there's, There's no other Savior out there. Nobody else came for us. Nobody else died for us. Nobody else could ever make the claim that he made. Nobody in all of history would ever say, examine my life and point to me any place where I have sinned. And everyone's just like, I can't think of anything. Only Jesus, who provides exactly what we need right now. In a pandemic, in unemployment, in the hardship of our marriage, in the struggles with our kids, in the crazy political world in which we're in with 37 executive orders, right? I mean, we're, we're in a pickle. And he says, come to me. Come to me. And you'll get what you need. You'll get the food. You'll get the water. You'll get the life, the light. We'll see that next week. But there's more. My third way that I want to just acknowledge that Jesus identifies himself is that he establishes himself over us when jesus refers to himself as the son of man he does in fact present himself as the fulfillment of the prophecies of the son of man prophecies there's not a ton of them but there's enough of them to make it very clear he is in fact the son of man referred to in daniel 7 he is the judge he is the king he is the messiah whose kingdom will never end and for those who have the ears to hear, Jesus makes this very clear. Listen to just a few more Son of Man statements. Matthew 25, 31, 35. This one's huge. He says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then will he sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations. And he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to them on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. It's a powerful and beautiful passage. But notice this, that the Son of Man and the King are exactly the same person sitting on the throne judging the nations, right? Jesus makes no bones about who he is. He relates with us. He distinguishes himself from us. He establishes himself over us. Matthew 26, Jesus comforts his disciples with the hope of the ascension and his return, saying, From now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Right? He's over us. He's one of us. He's distinguished and the best of us. And he is eventually and currently over us. He's God's chosen one. He is the judge, the Messiah. But you will notice... Given all of that, that Jesus does not refer to himself ever publicly as the Messiah or the Christ or the King. He constantly refers to himself in this 
very humble, very powerful, mysterious little phrase, the Son of Man. And I know as we get here towards the end of the message, some of you are like, who cares? Why does this matter? Okay, I'm glad you asked. Let me finish with my third and final subheading, why it matters. Go back to John 12, verse 34. Go back to the crowd's confusion about Jesus. The crowds are confused, why? Because they have a very strong association and assumption concerning the Messiah. And if you're listening, they state it very clearly in verse 43. We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Do you hear what they're saying? They're articulating a major problem. That problem still exists for many people today. It exists for the Jews. It exists for the Muslims. It exists for a lot of people who have confusion about Jesus. The problem is this. If he is the Messiah, if he is actually the second person of the Trinity, how could he suffer? How could he die? Why would he die? The cross is a symbol of shame and failure and defeat. You'd be amazed how many millions of people still think that way. They just can't get over it. Listen. We all want a God who would behave like we would behave if we were God. That's just a universal truth. We want a God who will show up in the nick of time by rescuing the innocent, punishing the oppressors. We want a God who opposes the people that oppose us. We want a God who will turn a blind eye to our mess, but execute justice for all the other bad people in the world. We want a God who agrees with our definition of good and evil, or at least is tolerant when we disagree with him. We want a God who gives us what we want when we want it. Every generation of human beings is inclined to create a God in their own image. Even though the scriptures tell us that God created the heavens and the earth and he created us in his image, right? The Jews here in John 12 are just a perfect example of the human tendency. They desired a mighty military hero whose political dominion would never end. They had very strong nationalistic aspirations and expectations of the Messiah. And, you know, they found scriptures to support their ideal of Messiah. They loved to recite scriptures like 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 13, Isaiah 9, 7, especially Daniel 7, 14, that spoke of this Messiah whose kingdom would never end. But they turned a blind eye to myriads of other scriptures, particularly Isaiah 53, where the anointed one of God is described as the suffering servant, the one who is crushed for our iniquities, numbered amongst the transgressors, and whose soul was poured out to death as an intercession for the transgressors. You see, the first century Jews, having endured centuries of occupation by Gentile nations, had no place in their imagination for a Messiah who would suffer, who would die like a grain of wheat, who would be lifted up from the earth on a Roman cross. Such is why Jesus used this mysterious and loaded title of the Son of Man. Jesus needed to define himself on his own terms. He knew the cross would be an offense to those who carried such nationalistic presumptions about the Messiah. But his use of this title also explains the question asked by the crowd at the end of verse 43. Who is this Son of Man? In other words... We don't recognize this particular kind of son of man. We don't really think that's a thing. We don't really think that jives with what the Bible says. He doesn't satisfy our expectations, our nationalistic assumptions. He comes across as weak, shameful, 
something other than divine, to put it quite frankly, disappointing. Paul said it best in 1 Corinthians 1.18, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. This tension exists to the state church. A lot of it still exists even in you and me. And a lot of people who might be watching this message today or later, we have questions, we have confusions. Why would Jesus have to die? How does that work if he's both God and man and do we have to have all that blood and sacrifice? And we struggle with it. But I want to warn you to be careful to not fall into the trap of measuring Jesus by your preconceived notions of divinity or how you think a God should act or what a good and loving God would ever allow you to suffer or your friends or anybody. Be- before long, if you continue to do that, you will find yourself amongst this crowd of people in John 12 asking the same question with little interest in hearing the answer. You know, as we look at what comes next, Jesus doesn't actually answer their question because it's a rhetorical question. It's a rhetorical question. They're not asking to learn. They're, they're asking because they're being cynical and making their point as if they are pretty convinced that they're right. And there's a lot of us who are like that. We should be asking questions to learn about God, but we, we don't really want to learn. We've already made up our minds, haven't we? For these kind of people, the cross is folly. And it will be utter folly to all of us who expect Jesus to meet our predetermined expectations of a God that we have made in our own image. Listen, church, and even if you're not part of the church, let me just invite you to consider this. If God is God and God exists and God created the heavens and the earth, God made thumbs and God made eyes and all the brilliance that we see, then it stands to reason that God gets to define himself on his own terms, right? That makes sense. The characters in a book don't get to define the author. The author gets to define himself and the characters in the book. So it is only right and reasonable that we allow Jesus to define himself in his own terms. And this is what we know. Jesus chose to define himself, to refer to himself, and to present himself as the Son of Man. And I've only touched on the significance of that title just a bit, but take this to heart. Jesus did not choose that title arbitrarily. He did not stumble across that title and thought it fit. It is a descriptor that he chose, and in it he reveals truth about himself, truth about us, truth about the way things are, the way things will be, on his own terms. So here's the point. The way Jesus speaks about himself reveals what is true about God, about heaven and hell, about the end of the world, and about us. So, You want to know more about you? You want to understand your place in the world? You want to try to understand the meaning of life? Get to know Jesus on his terms. You want to know where we can find hope in this dark hour of history? Get to know Jesus on his own terms. You want to know how you can be forgiven of all the mess in your life? All that haunts you, this creeping, never-ending sense of condemnation 
get to know Jesus on his own terms. Because as you get to know him, you get to know truth. He said, I am the truth. He's not going to be measured by your truth. You will be measured by his. He is the man, the son of man. The best of us, the only perfect one. And he is over us. That takes a little bit of humility. But think about it. Who else came to save us? He's the one who loved us so much. He took on our sin and died in our place. He is humble and lowly in heart. He's the perfect one. He's the way, the truth, and the life. And he is coming again to judge the living and the dead. Get to know the Son of Man. And you will not only walk in the light. Here's what he says next week. You will become children of the light. And you will never stumble around in the darkness again. More on that next week. Will you pray with me? Lord, as we close our time together today, I'm just so grateful that you defined yourself, that you revealed yourself on your own terms, even when everybody around you wanted to put you into a box and make you fit their, their notions, their desires, their nationalistic hopes and dreams, that you resisted falling into that trap, that you simply presented yourself as the Son of Man, as one of us, as the best of us, as the one over us. I pray that as we, we turn back to the Gospels and, and, we, and we read and we listen for the Holy Spirit to speak truth into our lives, that we will allow you to define yourself on your own terms and we will quit holding up our truth as though somehow it's authoritative. When in fact, it's just not. Truth has been revealed to us and it makes sense of everything. It makes sense of of what we see in the mirror, that we're personal, that we're moral, that we're beautiful and tragically broken all at the same time. It makes sense of this longing for home that is not on this earth. It makes sense of this need to be forgiven. Because without that, we stand and live in a chronic sense of condemnation and it informs our attitude, our relationships, everything that we do. So Lord, I just pray that we will come to know the truth. We'll live in the truth, abide in the truth, and the truth will set us free, that we will be children of light. Be and abide with us now as we go through our week. Bless us, help us to understand and think upon these things and be transformed as we come closer to the knowledge and the understanding of, of who you are and who we are, that we might have this relationship that we might be forgiven, that we would be your disciples. I pray this in Jesus' name. The whole church said, amen.